Bible today and look with me at the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel. If you get to 2 Samuel, you've gone a tad bit too far. Just back it right on up one book to 1 Samuel. Looking at uh, part of chapter 1 as well as a couple of verses in chapter 2 is we're going to start a new series today that I have titled Chasing the Crown. We're going to look at the life of King David. You know, there's uh, maybe not a more important person in the Old Testament than King David. Outside of the books that he is directly involved with or in which he speaks directly, outside of those, he's mentioned some 250 times in Scripture. He's a very important uh, figure that God uses in a great way. Leading up to his life, we see an interesting thing taking place as Israel has finally been freed from their four centuries of slavery, and they find themselves finally entering into and settling in the promised land. And they look around at the nations around them, and those nations all have kings. And so God, they say to God, and we'll look more at this next Sunday, they say to God, we want a king like all the other nations nations around us have kings. And so they receive a series of kings, mostly uh, full of bad news and bad actions, but God grants them their request. They believed that having a king was key to their success. They believed that having a king, the right king, would guarantee their prosperity, would give them stability, and would offer them security. They believed, if I can go ahead and start meddling just a little bit, they believed that if the White House was right, everything else would be right as well. They thought if we can just get a king that thinks like we do and has our best interest at heart, then that king will be our Savior. The book of First Samuel is in essence a book about the search for that king. It's, a, it's about the people chasing after this crown that they think will bring them stability and success. And we see among these kings, the second king to come along in this long line of kings was King David. And, and we see how in many ways he was a, a king that fulfilled a lot of their expectations. He was in many ways the kind of king that they wanted. He wasn't necessarily the kind of king that they needed. And in the end, he really disappoints everyone. Understand that David's life is not in the Bible to point us to David. His life is in the Bible to point us to another king who would come after him. A king who would not just chase a crown, but would wear one for our sin and for our salvation. This king that would follow David years later would not be a king that came from God. He would be a king who was God. David points us to Jesus, the son of David, who was not just a king, he was the king of all kings, and his life points us to that person. This series, I think you'll find, is going to be very applicable for our lives today because all of us, we're chasing a crown. 
We all are seeking a king. Your king is that thing from which you seek your stability, your prosperity, your happiness. That is your king. That is the crown you chase. And what David's life shows us over and over again is that God is the only one who can be our king because everything else disappoints. Listen, every other God will always overpromise and underdeliver. Now, along the way, we're going to see that David failed and he succeeded, but ultimately, the point of David's life is not to point us to him, but to point us to his God. David disappoints, but Jesus never does. And David's life, and we study his life beginning with a situation that may at first glance not seem like it has anything at all to do with David, but it certainly is. We start with a woman named Hannah, who as we open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, finds herself in a bad spot. 1 Samuel chapter 1 says that there was a certain man of Ramathame Zotham, that's just outside of Tallahassee. He was of the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. That's not going to end well, but he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So Eli is the priest, he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I think he had a, a, a half-son whose name was Ferb, but that's according to Nickelodeon. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that would be Peninnah, used to provoke her, Hannah, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, her aloof, her stubborn, her, the dots are not connecting yet, husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Hannah's problem, as the narrative opens up, shows us that she has no kids, and children were essential to having a, a good life. Theirs was an agrarian culture. The more sons you had, the more workers you had for the land. The more workers you had for the land, the more income you could have. The more income you had, the greater status you would achieve. Remember, this is before the days of Social Security. This is before the days of 401Ks. So the more children you had, the better chance you had of being taken care of 
love in your old age. Women in that culture, women who could bear children were heroes. Those women who were unable to bear children were considered by many in that culture as being without purpose and and really being useless from a human perspective. So from Hannah's perspective, practically speaking, Hannah is viewed as someone who has no significance, nor does she have any hope. And to add insult to injury, you have the other wife, and and it's always, there's never a time in Scripture when it mentions a husband having two wives where it works out well. And that's not because he has two wives. The reason it'll work out well is that's not the way God designed it. And whenever you do something opposite the way God designs, it never goes well. And so when we read that he has another wife, Peninnah, and she, to add this insult to injury, she had children, and she reminded Hannah of that every chance that she had. It mentions how she provoked her, how it irritated Hannah. This is the only time in the Bible that word is used when it comes to conflict between people. And the Hebrew language is very emotive. It's, it, it has a lot of imagery involved. And that word in the Hebrew, it has the idea of, of being in the midst of a storm. This was something that was a burden to Hannah. And it was more than just an irritation. Hannah was so deeply distressed, she wasn't eating. And so Elkanah being the <coughs> star husband he was at this point, in essence, he says, well, Hannah, you know, you may not be able to amount to much right now to just have children, but you've got me, and my love ought to be enough for you. Let's just pause right here <coughs> and reflect for a moment. See what's happening, because I think you'll see yourself in this narrative already. In Hannah's world, her significance and her security depended upon how often she could have a child. So for her to be childless in her culture would mean that she had no value in people's eyes. She was worthless. There was no security for her. Peninnah, who could have children, constantly reminded her of her lack of value. And Elkanah, in this weird way, offers a romantic salvation to her, believing that he can fill the void in her life. Now, Hannah's story is replicated in each of us. In our unhappiness, in our discontentment, we turn to alternative solutions. If there's something in our life and we're just not happy, we think, if I can only have this, then I'll be happy. If I can only have this something that I don't already have, then I will be happy. And we're going to see how that's just not how it works. Verse 9, and after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of her Lord. Notice that this verse 9 is a turning point in Hannah's life. It says that Hannah rose. Again, that word rose, that's not just some random detail. That's not like saying, okay, she decided to, to stand up and go to the living room. The word in Hebrew indicates a decisive action. Hannah stood up. She made a resolve. She made a choice. What was that choice? Verse 10. 
She was deeply distressed, and here's her choice. She prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Don't miss this. She is expressing her choice in the prayer that she prays. And there were a couple of big things she prayed and declared in that prayer. She said, God, remember me. She believes that God cares about the plight of a barren woman that everyone else says is a failure. She is expressing a great amount of faith. But then she said, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you. Don't miss this. She, she talks about devoting this son to the Lord. No razor shall touch his head. That is this thing in the Old Testament that's called a Nazarite vow. The kid, when he was committed to the Lord in this Nazarite vow, that kid would leave his home at an early age. He would go and live in the temple with the high priest. He would learn how to become a priest. She makes this vow, giving away her son, renouncing her claim to future family property. She is, in essence, saying, I want to have a son and then switch families. I want to give him from my family to the family of God in the priest. Hannah completely renounced everything she had hoped to obtain in a child. This is a turning point in her life. This child would not grow up in her house. This child would not be around her in her old age. This child is not going to be able to take care of her as a normal child would, yet she still prays. She's not praying, God, give me a child so he can take care of me. She's praying, God, give me a child so I can give him to you and you can use him for your honor and for your glory. Verse 18 shows us something about her character when she said, and she's speaking to Eli the priest at this point, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now this is before, well let me ask you the question, the, 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 the answer to the question is before, okay? The answer to the question is before. I will ask a question. The answer to that question is, okay, here's the question. <laughs> Does Hannah pray this prayer before her son is born or after the son is born? Before. And after she prayed it, it said her face was no longer sad. Her joy occurs before she becomes pregnant. It's not, I'm going to pray, get what I want, and then have joy. It's not, I'm going to pray, become expecting a child, and then have joy. No, no, she prays, then she has joy, and then she becomes pregnant. What happened? Until now, she has sought joy in having a child, but now she has found her joy somewhere else. Where did she find her joy? Look over in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says that Hannah prayed and she said in this prayer, 
My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is no none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Chapter 2 is her song of joy, and she tells us where she has found that joy. Her strength has moved from having children to having God. Her song declares her faith in God's wisdom, in God's strength, in God's beauty, in God's holiness, in God's compassion for the smallest and the most insignificant people. This, I believe, is showing us Hannah's salvation. She has now found her security, her identity, and her significance in God. She no longer depended on it from her family. She had been asking for a son for her, and now she asked for a son for God. And God gave her a son. That son's name was Samuel. Samuel becomes a priest and a prophet who would anoint King David. Now, there's more to this story than just this neat circumstance leading up to David becoming king. I want you to see some some parallels. See, there is a parallel between Hannah's story and Israel's story. See, Israel wanted a king to guarantee their prosperity, their stability, their security, and their significance. Hannah wanted a son for those very same reasons. God told Hannah that what she sought would not be found in a son. God told Israel that what they were seeking would not be found in a king. But God did tell both Hannah and Israel that what they sought, what they were seeking, would be found in him and him alone. There's a parallel between Hannah's story and Israel's story, but there's also a parallel between Hannah's story and Jesus' story because years down the road, another woman is going to face an impossible birth like Hannah's. Her name was Mary, and her birth was impossible because she didn't have a husband and she had never been with a man. For Hannah, having a baby would mean significance and success for Mary, that baby would mean a loss of everything that she held on to for significance and security. That baby would mean her reputation would be lost and soiled. It would mean financial hardship for her family. But like Hannah, Mary believed that God was a better source of identity and security. And like Hannah, Mary surrenders herself to Jesus or to God, and as she found her identity and her hope in Him. And Mary, like Hannah, expressed her joy in a song. In fact, if you'll read Luke chapter 2 compared to 2 Samuel chapter 2, there are striking similarities where she expresses her joy to God. Hannah gives birth to Samuel, a prophet and a priest who would anoint a king. Mary gives birth to Jesus, a prophet, priest, and a king. See, for Hannah, she prayed for deliverance from this curse of no children, from this shame that she felt. Jesus will will later pray 
for God to remove a curse and a shame that's upon his life. If it be possible, take this cup from me. Hannah's shame was removed, but Jesus took the shame of her sin and my sin and your sin, and he took it away. See, there's a parallel between Hannah's story and Israel's story and between Hannah's story and Jesus' story, but there's also a parallel between Hannah's story and your story. See, Hannah looked for significance in a son. Israel looked for significance in a king. Where are you looking for your significance? What is the king you seek? What one thing do you think you must have in order for your life to be good? I want you to seriously, right now, think about that question. What's the one thing in your life that you think you must have for your life to be good? Whatever your answer to that question is, that is your king. That is the crown that you are chasing. You see, religious people and irreligious people they both have something in common. Both think that they need something besides Jesus for security and significance. Irreligious people believe that they need something instead of Jesus. Religious people believe that they need something in addition to Jesus. So let me give you something to put in your pocket to take home with you this morning. Real quick, practical lessons we walk out of here with. One is this. Seeking a king other than God always, always, always leads to disappointment. If you will find that place in your life in which that area you are completely, utterly disappointed, you feel hopeless in, you are hurt the, the deepest in, that thing about which you are worried more than anything else, when you find that, you can trace that back to the places where you're seeking kings other than God. If you're, and I'll just use this as an example, if you're, if you're so frustrated and you're so helpless and you feel so hopeless that your, your spouse is not what he or she ought to be, that is the crown that's in your life. Spouses make great spouses. They make horrible saviors. If, if you're thinking that that, that that deepest need in your life, that deepest hurt in your life, that, that you can't move forward until that kid gets lined up and right with God. Look, I'm not saying that you ought not pray for it. I'm not saying that you ought not invest in that life to, to point them to God. But I'm saying if, if that is what your happiness hinges on, that is the crown that you chase. Children make wonderful children, but they are horrible saviors. If for you it's, 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 it's that amount that's in that bank account and, and you think, if I can just get these bills behind me, they are the, the things that are pressing the most. If I can just get over this hump, if I can just have this, then I will be happy. And if it's just this one thing, if this bank account will get right, that, will make, that is the king for which you seek. Look, bank accounts are great for paying bills. They're lousy at being your savior. 
Any king you seek other than God will always lead to a disappointment. This is what Hannah reminds us. And two, the second lesson we take away from is this. God is better than any king you seek. The point of Hannah's story isn't to tell you that you'll get what you want or desire in this life. Get a little bit more God and you'll get what you want. Look, you may never have the child. You may never get the money. You may never (coughs) get the cure. You may never get well. You may very well die without those things that are significant by the world standard, but if you have a relationship with God, you have God. And listen, the point of Hannah's story is not that godly people have fill in the blank. The point of her story is not godly people have a spouse or a godly spouse. The point of her story is not godly people have children or children who are godly. The point of her story is not God Godly people have fill in the blank. The point of Hannah's story is godly people have God and He's enough. Because the kings you seek, not only will they lead you to disappointment, they are not better than the only king that there's room for in your life. God becomes our everything. He becomes our significance. He becomes our security. He becomes our stability. See, Hannah's life also teaches us this, that being barren does not mean you're forsaken. See, to be barren it basically means you're doing without something. And sometimes people are tempted to think the fact that I don't have fill in the blank is proof that that God doesn't love me is proof that God has forsaken me. The, the fact that I have more bills and I have income is proof that God's not concerned. The, the, the fact that, that I, I don't have this in my life, the fact that I don't have that, that, the fact that that's missing means that God must have forgotten. I mean, listen to me, friend. Hannah's life proves to us that God has not forsaken us. Jesus' life solidifies the fact that Jesus was forsaken so you would never have to be. Even if in the most uh, worst perspective of your life, even if you are barren in that valley, you can be content by being fulfilled in Christ. He, in all truth, in all reality, He is all we need. And when you have Jesus, you have enough. It's the fact that some of us have not come to a place where we realize that all we need is Jesus. But when you get to that point that Jesus is all you have, you find that Jesus really is all that you need. For you see, Hannah reminds us that God loves those that the world cast away. Maybe some of you feel like your life is a, a loop of failure. Nothing's been accomplished and you haven't succeeded. If that would be your position today, may I pastorally and gently 
say to you that you need the faith of Hannah. You need the faith of Hannah today. The faith of Hannah is simply to believe that God cares for you and that God has offered himself to you. And in offering himself to you, God has offered to you the world's greatest possession. To have him as your treasure is truly all that we need. Do you have him as your treasure today? Oh, he loves you. He loves you more than anyone will ever love you on this earth. You take the purest form of love that you have ever received from someone. That's typically the love of a, of a, of a mama or the love of a, a daddy or the love of, of someone. A grandparent is, is oftentimes that way. You take that most pure form of love that you've experienced. It doesn't even come close to plumbing the depths of God's love for you. Just as he loved Hannah, he loves you. Have you responded to that love? Do you love him? Has there been a time in your life when you came to Jesus and Jesus, I may have a lot of stuff in my life, but one thing I don't have is you. And if I don't have you, it doesn't matter what I have in this life. What does it profit a man or a woman if he or she gains the whole world but loses their own soul? Hannah didn't have much in her hand. In fact, that boy that finally was born to her, she sent off to the temple to be the servant of God. But Hannah had everything in her heart. You can leave here today with your hands full, but your heart is empty. And if your heart's empty, then your hope is in this world only. And if your hope is in this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But my hope goes beyond this world. I came in with nothing in my hands, and I'm going to leave with nothing in my hands but I'm going to leave, whether it's today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 100, Lord, I hope it's not 100 years from now, but if it is 100 years from now, <laughs> when I leave, there'll be something in my heart that I didn't put there. There'll be something in my heart that I did nothing to deserve, except for one day sitting on the edge of my mom and daddy's bed and realizing that I had sin. And there was nothing I could do about it. But that there was a Savior who came and lived the life I'd never be able to live. And died a death I should have died. And though there's nothing I could do about my sin, there was something he could do about it. And that day he took my sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Since that day, there have been some things to come into my hand. There have been some things to leave my hand. But there has never been anything that left my heart. Is that your relationship today? If not, right where you are, you can pray to Jesus. Confess your sin. Ask him to be your savior. And he'll save you from your sin today. He'll place his hope within your heart. You may not get what you think you're missing, 
but you will get the only thing you really need. That's Jesus. In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand. If you've got questions about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, we'd love to help you try to answer those questions. If you made it...